Last week, we began a new series through the Sermon on the Mount. And as we began the introduction to this famous sermon from Jesus, we, we started by asking and answering four different questions. And the, the four questions that we asked and we answered last week were these. We asked, why are we studying the Sermon on the Mount? So why right now? Uh, what was the reason for digging into this sermon and taking the next two to three months to really study it and understand it? The second question we asked last week is, who is it for? When Jesus preached this sermon, who was his audience? Who was he intending these prescriptions and these these moral and ethical teachings to uh, be aimed at? The third question we asked is, what is it? We said it's important to keep the sermon in the context of the Gospel of Matthew for us to really understand what the Sermon on the Mount is. And the last question that we asked last week is, how should we read it? We said, in light of what the Sermon on the Mount is, how should you and I understand it? And we said it's very important that we don't read the Sermon on the Mount and take it as a moral or ethical prescription that any person can do. That if we just try harder and do better in our own power, we'll be able to live these things out. We need to understand that this was a sermon that was written and this was a sermon that was taught for Jesus' disciples to Jesus' disciples and that it is only those who have the power of Jesus within them, the Holy Spirit, who are actually able to live this out. Apart from that, it is impossible to live out what the Sermon on the Mount mandates. And so this week, as we continue this overview of the Sermon on the Mount, what I want to do this week is I want to give you two guiding principles for reading and studying the Sermon on the Mount. Then once I give you those two principles, we're going to actually take a quick run through the Sermon on the Mount at like 50,000 feet, just do an overview of the whole thing. And then we're going to end with three takeaways uh, from today's teaching. And so let's start by looking at our first guiding principle for reading and studying the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when we talked about what the sermon was last week, uh, we talked about the importance of context, right? As I already said, that we needed to make sure that when we view the Sermon on the Mount, that we're viewing it in the larger context of Matthew's gospel. And when we view it in the larger context of Matthew's gospel, it becomes very clear that Matthew's intent in his gospel is to show that Jesus is king and there is a kingdom that he is ruling over. And so the Sermon on the Mount is this king describing for his subjects what life in his kingdom was going to be like. And this week, I want to focus on this, the importance of context once again, but not in light of the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, since we already did that. I want to focus on the importance of context uh, within the Sermon on the Mount itself. And this is our first guiding principle that we must understand when we study the Sermon on the Mount the importance of maintaining proper context throughout the entire sermon. You know, just like you can't remove the Sermon on the Mount from the Gospel of Matthew, you also cannot take one part of the Sermon on the Mount and remove it from the whole. We need to, and what we're going to do this morning is look at the sermon all together before we start picking it apart and looking at the individual aspects of it. Because as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, he says, no part of this sermon can truly be understood except in light of the whole. And so that's our first guiding principle is to make sure that we keep this sermon in context throughout. You know, one of the dangers of the Bible is people like to take portions of the Bible. People like to take 
texts from the Bible and grasp on to individual texts and take them out of their context and hold on to them. And this is a dangerous thing that people do. Sometimes we will take something that Scripture says and we'll hold on to it as a promise in a situation that we're going through when that text has absolutely nothing to do with the situation that we're going through and it's not a promise that's meant for us. Sometimes people will take uh, pieces of Scripture out of context and they will use them as weapons against other people. Sometimes people will take aspects of scripture and we will use them to uh, as a tool to justify ourselves in some way. And there's no doubt that every single one of us is and has been guilty of this at different times in our lives. Because of our fallenness, sometimes we grasp onto certain things in scripture because they suit us, but this is dangerous. You know, when you when you look at uh, the the progressive movement within Christianity, when you look at churches that are bowing to culture's agendas, one of the things that you can trust is happening is that that church is taking parts of the Bible out of context. It's a dangerous game to play. Just a a silly illustration um, that kind of drives this point home. I was watching Paul Washer, a sermon by Paul Washer not too long ago, and he, he used this illustration in regards to Hebrews 11.1. 1. And Hebrews 11.1 1 is the most concise definition of what faith is in all of Scripture, and it's very famous. You know it. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now that is a dangerous text. That text can be used in a lot of wrong ways. Let me give you an example. You know, say that I decided that I believed I could fly, right? Like, I have this hope that I am able to fly. And well, when I read this text, Hebrews 11.1 tells me, okay, faith is the assurance of the things hoped for. So I hope that I can fly. I have assurance because I have faith that I am able to fly. And you may come to me and try and talk some sense to me and say, listen, uh, nobody's ever seen a human fly before. And I can respond to you, that's no problem because faith is also the conviction of things that haven't been seen. And so just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean that it can't happen. And so I am hoping that I can fly and I have assurance that I can because I have faith. And then you can imagine what's going to happen when I step up on the roof of my house and jump off. I'm going to go splat on the ground. And it's because I've taken this, this text out of context. But this happens all the time. Think about the prosperity gospel in regards to this text. I hope for more money. I hope for more stuff. And, uh, and faith, I have faith. And so I have assurance that those things that I hope for, more money, more stuff, I'm going to see them. God's going to do it. We can do the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount. And we do do the same thing with the Sermon on the Mount. And it's interesting because not only Christians, but non-Christians do this with the Sermon on the Mount. We have this tendency to pick one section of it to fixate on particular statements that Jesus says that suit us and work for us. I'll give you the perfect example and probably the most obvious one, Matthew 7, verse 1. 
Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not that you be not judged. Oh, we've all heard that one, right? The problem is, this is one of those sentences, one of those statements that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that are that is consistently taken out of context by Christians and non-Christians alike, right? This is a sentence that is often used as a condemnation, not of judgment the way that Jesus is teaching it, but any sort of critical thinking towards someone or a situation, right? I hear this out of the mouths of Christians and non-Christians alike, and it's often used as some sort of get-out-of-jail-free card from any sort of accountability to other people because you can't judge me. Jesus says, do not judge or you're going to be judged, so don't you dare. But there is a difference between the judgment that Jesus is teaching here and criticism. There is also a difference between judgment of Christians and Non-Christians, it is not some blanket statement that condemns judgment, but so many individuals use it that way because it suits them, because it works for them. It's a tool that helps them justify themselves. And this is what we want to protect against. My desire for every single person in our church is for you to have the deepest, most life-giving, most sin-destroying, most joy-filled relationship with Jesus Christ that you can possibly have. And I can tell you that it is not helpful to you to point out one part of this sermon because it suits you to fix on one aspect of this sermon because you like it or you're knocking it out of the park and ignore the rest. That is not how our relationship with Jesus deepens. That is not life-giving. That is not sin-destroying. The whole point of God's Word is that we allow those things that we maybe don't like in it or maybe tougher for us to read to lay weight upon us and allow the Holy Spirit of God to work through us. So we must take the whole, not just focus on little pieces. You know, it kind of reminds me, it's not not entirely the same, but it reminds me of James' teaching about the law in James 2 verse 10. You know, James says about the law, he says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one aspect of it becomes guilty of the whole thing. And And I think of the same kind of thing when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount. This is how I would say it, similar to James's wording in his epistle. I would say the one who focuses on one point of the Sermon on the Mount but fails to recognize the importance of the whole has missed even the one point that he's focused on and lost the entire spirit of the Sermon on the Mount. When we focus on one aspect to the detriment of others, we create a false gospel based on what suits us. Now, am I saying that there aren't times where the Lord will work in you on one aspect of the Sermon on the Mount? He certainly will. But when we choose what suits us best as being most important from the entirety of Jesus' teaching, then we are no longer following Jesus' teaching. We are following our own teaching. And so that's, that's one issue that can arise when we don't keep the Sermon on the Mount in context of the whole. The other issue that can arise when we don't keep it in the right context is we can take one point out and then 
start mechanically applying it to our lives in every situation and every circumstance that we find ourselves. Let me illustrate this with an example from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He, he says this. He says, people come to this sermon and say something like this. Take that injunction. If any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. If you did that, you would soon have nothing left in your wardrobe. That is the kind of approach that must not be made. You must not take separate injunctions and say, this is to be applied. That is not the way to look at it. What is inculcated is that I should be in such a spirit that under certain circumstances and conditions, I must do just that. Throw in the cloak or go the second mile. This is no mechanical rule to be applied, but I am such a person that if it is God's will and for his glory, I do so readily. So what he's saying there is he's saying we can pull points out and we can say in every situation that I'm in, I have to give this person my cloak. In every situation I'm in, I have to turn the other cheek. That's mechanically applying the Sermon on the Mount and missing the spirit of it. What Jesus is teaching us is we should be of the kind of spirit that when certain circumstances and situations arise, that it be God's will and for God's glory that we do so, then we readily do it. You know, to protect against these errors where we take a one point out and focus on it, I believe this is why Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount the way he did, with the Beatitudes. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is not without purpose in its order, and it begins with the Beatitudes. This is very purposeful, and I'm going to explain why in a moment after we look at the second principle that must guide us. And the second principle that must guide us, we looked at last week very briefly. We said, we concluded last week that this sermon is for followers of Jesus. And so our second guiding principle that we must follow, that must be maintained when reading the Sermon on the Mount, is that only genuine followers of Christ are accountable to it. And that may seem very simple to you, but it is very important to state. Those apart from Jesus Christ should not, and in fact cannot, be expected to uphold any of the obligations this sermon implies. And I think it's important to state that because when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we often expect everyone to live according to much of what Jesus teaches in here. Now, I would say even, even non-Christians actually expect people to live and to treat them according to much of the teachings, teachings found in this sermon. But as I said last week, you cannot understand this sermon properly. You cannot live it out accordingly without the Spirit of God within you. It is impossible. But though that be the case, it doesn't mean that we still don't place the expectation on others. I'll give you a couple of examples. I would say that every single one of us expect others to treat us well to not talk ill of us or falsely accuse us. 
We expect others' word to be trustworthy, to be able to rely on what comes out of their mouth. We expect others to treat us well, even when they deeply disagree with us. We expect others to treat us as they would want to be treated. These are all things that we see in the Sermon on the Mount, that we expect of other people, but we cannot demand someone live according to even a portion of the Sermon on the Mount without that person being born again. It is futile to think that they should. So that brings me back to the point that it is deeply significant that Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount by teaching the Beatitudes. You see, the Beatitudes, they come first to protect against taking one point out of the whole and focusing on it. The Beatitudes come first to protect against mechanically applying the Sermon on the Mount. They come first to protect against expecting or demanding non-Christians to live according to it. How do they do this? They do it by making it clear to us that conformity to Jesus Christ must come first before any other point in this sermon. No one can rightly move past the Beatitudes to the other teachings that are in the Sermon on the Mount until that person has conformed through Jesus Christ to the Beatitudes themselves. This means that all of the appeals to conduct, all of these appeals to ethics and morality throughout Jesus' teaching are rooted in an assumption of being born again of being transformed, of having the spirit of Jesus Christ within you. You see, the Beatitudes are not describing different individuals and different character traits that some people have. Jesus is not sitting there and saying, well, blessed is the person who is poor in spirit, and blessed is this person who is meek. And blessed is this person who hungers and thirsts. And blessed is this person who is a peacemaker. That is not what the Beatitudes are teaching. The Beatitudes are not describing for us characters that are in different people. The Beatitudes are describing character that makes up one person. These are all characters that make up one person, not several people. And that one person that Jesus Christ is describing is his follower. That one person that Jesus Christ is describing is you and me and anyone else who has the Spirit of God within them. The Beatitudes are a description of Christian character and only apply to those who are in Christ. Or, I would even say, those who are coming to Christ. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. But these are the two principles that we must hold to when we go through this sermon. Now what I want to do is I want to do a quick overview of the entire sermon with you. Look at some of the different parts before we start to dig down next week into each section. You know, the sequence of the the Sermon on the Mount, it can be divided up differently, and and many different pastors and teachers divide it in different ways, Um, but I've divided it into four general parts, and then 11 more specific focuses, and I'll give that to you now. 
Matthew 5, verse 3 to 10, known as the Beatitudes, is the first section of this sermon, and it is all about Christian character. Once Jesus speaks about Christian character, from Matthew 5, verse 10 to the end of chapter 5, Jesus teaches about us living in relation to other people. And then Matthew chapter 6, Jesus moves on to teach about us living in relation to God as our Father. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus teaches about us living in relation to God as our judge. And so these are the four general parts. It starts with Christian character and then moves to how we relate to others and then how we relate to God as Father and then how we relate to God as judge. And within each section, Jesus breaks it down further and teaches the expectations of the people of his kingdom. And so in Christian character, Jesus teaches who we are. Right? He says, you are to be poor in spirit. Well, who's poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit means to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy. It means to recognize our unworthiness before God. And when we are poor in spirit, then we mourn. Right? He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who recognize that they are unworthy before the Lord. And then blessed are those who mourn. Right? To mourn means to grieve. And Jesus is saying, you know, when you recognize that you're poor in spirit, it grieves you over your sinfulness. It grieves you that you are unworthy before the Lord. And when we recognize we're poor in spirit, when we grieve for it, then what do we do? We hunger and we thirst for righteousness. Right? Being poor in spirit and grieving over the reality of our brokenness causes Christians or those who are coming to Christ to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We seek it out. We have this desire to have this need met because we recognize how deep the need is. We want our hunger to be satisfied. We want our thirst to be quenched. Right? This is describing Christian character. I can tell you that only followers of Christ recognize that they are poor in spirit and it grieves them, and they hunger for righteousness. Or those who are being brought to Christ. Because it is only through the Spirit of God that we recognize our unworthiness before Him, that we grieve that unworthiness, and we long for that to change. So these are characteristics of who we are as Christians and then it, it leads into these other characteristics. It says, blessed is the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers. And it, it, it shows this Christian character that grows in us with the Spirit of Christ in us, right? Because we have received mercy from God, and as those who have received mercy, we are merciful, Right, as those who understood that our hearts were sinful, we want to live pure lives. We want to be pure in heart. And as those who know the Prince of Peace, we want to bring peace. Jesus is teaching us who we are in this first section. And we're going to start to really unpack that next week. And then he moves on to living in relation to others. So after he says who we are, he then says what we are. And he says, you are salt and you are light. And just briefly, you know, salt, salt preserves and light illuminates. And so when we consider what salt does and we consider what, what light does and, and we consider the, the, what they counteract, 
It's a picture of, of what we're meant to be in this world. Salt preserves things from decay. Light banishes darkness. So Jesus is teaching simultaneously what we are, but also what the world is. If we are salt, then the world is decaying, and we are here to preserve it. If we are light, then the world is darkness, and we are here to bring light to that darkness. And what this means for you and I is that we are to be fundamentally different than those around us who do not know Jesus Christ. We are to be fundamentally different than our neighbor. And so the question is, are we? Oh, we're going to dig into that in the next few weeks. And then Jesus teaches about our emotions. He teaches about anger. He says we are to be so self-controlled that we do not get angry without cause. We are to never speak an ill word against a brother. We are to never judge ourselves as superior to another human being in any circumstance. How are we doing so far? Are we starting to see the impossibility of this? And then he goes on to teach about integrity. He says three different things. He teaches about our sexual integrity. Looking at a woman with lustful intent is adultery. Right? He's, he's teaching that, listen, people may not know what you're doing, but integrity begins in the heart. And so though someone may not know you're looking at a woman lustfully, your integrity is shown as whether you do that or not when nobody else knows what you're doing because it reveals the condition of your heart. Then he talks about our integrity in regards to the commitments that we make with marriage, that when we make a covenant commitment with marriage, we stand fast in that commitment. And then he goes on to teach about the integrity of our words, that we are to not speak a false word ever, that we should have such an unwavering reputation among other people that they never doubt anything that comes out of our mouth. If we say something, it is true. If we commit to something, it will happen. And then he goes on to teach about humility amongst others. When someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. He's teaching, are we more worried about our right do we trust God for justice? He teaches about loving our enemies. Do we love those who hate us, knowing that we were haters of God, and yet when we were still sinners, Christ died for us? And so do we love those who are enemies to us? Then he teaches about generosity towards others. True generosity is not worrying about what you may get in return. It is giving for the sake of helping. It is giving for the sake of honoring another as made in the image of God himself, never done in the spirit of getting back or viewing yourself as superior. How are we doing? How are we doing? These things expose our hearts. Then he moves on to living in relation to God as Father. He talks about our desires. He starts with prayer, talking about seeking the Lord for our needs but also because we desire him. Jesus teaches, go to your room and pray in private. This is very important. Jesus is talking about our private lives here. He's talking about our desires because he knows that our private time reveals who our God is. What we do in private is who our God is. And so do we go to our Father in private, close the door to be with him because we desire him? Or are we like the Pharisees who just pray to him on street corners where everyone can see? And then he talks about fasting. We all have needs, but it is the Lord who fulfills those needs 
Man does not live by bread alone, Jesus says. And so fasting is about giving up something that is, is good for something that is greater, showing the worth of Christ above earthly things. What we will not give up, what we will not fast is our God. Jesus is trying to expose our hearts and then he teaches similarly about our treasures. Our attitude toward money, where we spend our money is showing us what our God is in our hearts. Jesus is talking to our desires in this section. And then he goes on to talk about our attitude towards circumstances. Are we anxious? Do we worry? All of these have to do with our relationship with God as Father and our trust in Him. And then in the last section, Jesus goes on to talk to teach about living in relation to God as judge. And he touches on the issue of pride. He talks about judging others. What is our attitude towards those who are wrong? How do we treat them? How do we treat individuals according to the golden rule that Jesus gives us? And then he talks about our lives as a whole and the fruitfulness of our lives. He talks about a, a tree and its fruits and that, the, that true disciples will be recognized by their fruits. So how are we living? What is the outpouring, the natural outpouring of our lives? And then last, he touches on truth and wisdom. And he says, build your house on the rock. And the way to test whether you've built your house on the rock is when storms come, it reveals what you're trusting in. Because if you've built it on sand, then your house is going to collapse. This is just a brief overview of the things that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. And we are going to dig in deep to each one of these. But they reveal our hearts so openly. They expose us before the Lord. And so in light of these things that we've looked at, I want to end by giving you three brief takeaways. First is this. We are people who always live in light of and empowered by Christ's work in our lives. This is what is so evidently in the forefront of the Sermon on the Mount. This is why Jesus starts with the Beatitudes he says, you must be this before you can do this. And so we are a people who live always in light of the fact that we are empowered by Christ's work, that it is Christ's spirit within us that allows us to live these things out, that we have been fundamentally changed, transformed. Scripture says literally from death to life. And so we are people who live in light of that always. And as I said last week, that should drive us to Jesus Christ. That should drive us to our knees. That should drive us to deepen our relationship with him, that he may be everything and all things to us. The second takeaway is that we are people 
who live always with one eye to how we live in relation to others. God cares how we interact with other human beings who have been made in his image, and he makes that clear in this teaching. And so we are people who should live at all times understanding that we are salt and light, and other people are looking at us, and we have a mission on Christ's behalf to preserve this world that is decaying, to bring light to darkness, And so we must always account for how we live in relation to other people, especially those who do not know Jesus Christ, because we are his advocates. And what does it say about the one who we are advocating for if we are not living rightly? And others are seeing it. If we are not different for others to see. And third and last, we are a people who live always in the presence of God as our Father and as our Judge. We are a people who have a loving, heavenly Father who loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And now we live always in the presence of this loving heavenly father. And out of love and out of desire, we want to please him and live for him. But we are also people who know that he is judge of all the earth. And he will judge each one as we come before his throne. And we want to be those people who say, Father, I lived for you. I lived my life holy for you. And we want Jesus to say those words when we come before him as judge, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. The Sermon on the Mount exposes us. The Sermon on the Mount shows us who we are. The Sermon on the Mount shows us what we are to be in all different areas of life. And it reminds us of the type of people that we are, empowered by Christ, always living in relation to others and always living in relation to God. And I can't wait to start just digging into this further with you in the next several weeks as we look at Christian character more deeply and then move into these other aspects of this incredible sermon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for how your word exposes us and teaches us and shows us our great need. Father, help us to read your word in context, to understand what you were teaching, to be willing to allow the word to speak to our hearts, especially in areas that are maybe painful or we don't want you to go to. May we not try to take things out of context or switch things around because it suits us. Oh God, we want you to finish that work that you started in us. 
We want your spirit to work in us to make us more like your son. And Father, help us to understand what this sermon is doing, teaching us that, that we need Christ and that we are people who should always have an eye to our neighbor, that we are people who always live in the presence of our King. Father, we thank you for loving us, and we thank you for Jesus who empowers us to live in this way. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.